Hi, before we start tonight's wonderful podcast, we have a few quick reminders of upcoming events. First of all, October 9th, Sunday, 2011, we'll be having a Mormon Expression picnic and potluck lunch. That's right. It's going to be at Wheeler Farm, which is in Salt Lake. Um, it's at the pavilion on the south end of the um, of Wheeler Farm by the playground. It's a really cool playground. The kids will love it. And we'll um, have plenty of room, so come on out. Um, bring a dish to share. Uh, Mormon Expression will be bringing some extra food to make sure everybody is well satiated. And we will have some prizes to give away. The cost is free. Um, if you're planning on going, um, drop us a line at mail at Mormon Expression so we can get a head count. But otherwise, just feel free to show up. Also, we would like to, uh, again, uh, I think we announced this on uh, Facebook, so by the way, if you're not on our Facebook group, groups, go to go to Mormon Expression um, podcast community or Mormon Expression, and you can find us there. And um, on November 18th, that's a Friday night, also in Salt Lake City, at the University of Utah, we will be having a live podcast. It's at the Post Theater, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to sing. Um, some of the most bombastic Mormon hymns. It's not just sing. It'll be Mormon fight songs for dummies and sing along. Right. You so, will get to sing and then we'll have a discussion and you'll get to contribute to that. We'll um, have a fabulous panel on stage and we'll have open mics for the audience where you can throw in your two cents worth and sing your little guts out. And that one is also free. All right. Well, let's get started. But donations are accepted on the site as always. Welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your uh, host, John Larson, and I'm here tonight with another fine panel to um, discuss uh, another fine subject. First of all, um, on my right-hand side is the ever-talented Zilpha. Hi, Zilpha. Hey, John. Hey, everybody. Hey. <laughs> You're looking lovely this evening. Thank you. Um, and, uh, coming to us from the remote corners of the U.S., I can't tell you if they're looking lovely, um, this evening or not. First of all, I'm representing Eastside is, uh, Brant. Hey, Brant, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And, and I'll just let you know, I, I do look lovely tonight. Are you in your jammies? Actually, I, I am a little bit. I'm wearing my, uh, University of Michigan jersey, so I'm, I'm feeling quite, uh, quite proud of my state today. <laughs> And uh, representing the West Side, the West Coast, is um, Garen George. Hey, Garen, how you doing? I'm doing great. Great, uh, great to be here again, and uh, good to come out of my uh, my closet of uh, George and move into true Garenism. It's always good to have Garen here, and you're an OG, aren't you? What's an OG? OG. <laughs> oh, oh, come on. You guys aren't Guffer? that nice. Oh, 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 gee, an original gangster. Garen was oh, one of the. Oh, my gosh. Garen was one of the originals, man. I was going down a lot different. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, all right. Well, well, um, because we have such power hitters, there's only four of us tonight. So, so we're going to. We're going to really knock this one around. Um, this is another one in our series of the top 10. 
um, it gives us a chance to sort of talk through particular areas and sort of aggregate some information and, and maybe get some things we wouldn't necessarily have the time or energy to talk about in depth for a normal podcast. Um, and tonight, we're going to talk about the top 10 anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. Um, well, you just, you just smiled at me funny. Well, most people probably know what anachronism means, but there might be some who don't. Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably as good a place to start as any. An anachronism is something that's basically time out of place. So if you're giving a narrative and you put in something that doesn't exist, like if you were reading um, Shakespeare and they talked about a wristwatch, you would know, wait, wait, there weren't wristwatches at the time of... Maybe, maybe there were. I mean, that's a bad example. <laughs> I was thinking of Shakespeare refers to a clock um, in Julius Caesar. So if you read Julius Caesar, um, they look at the clock on the wall, and obviously there were no cr- clocks at the time of... Um, of um, of Caesar. So so that would be an example of an anachronism. It would show you that Julius Caesar the play couldn't have possibly been written at the time of 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 um, Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. It was written by Shakespeare. So um these things are really super obvious to us when they're close to us. For example, if you're watching um a television show, you will notice right away if hairstyles or clothing or 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 that stuff is off just even a little bit. You know, a, a great one is Mash, the 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 television show. The the movie the the show was started in the seventies and filmed in the seventies and into the early eighties. And they have shaggy hair, and they're kind of like kicking back, and it's a very 70s vibe show. But this is supposed to be portraying the Korean War in the 50s, when things were really buttoned down, and you know, like the doctors just wouldn't have been acting the way they, they acted in that, in that show. Now, they might have been doing some of the stuff, but it, it was very much part of the time. You can tell when MASH was written. And for, for those of you who have watched a lot of TV, I bet I could show you television shows that you may not have ever heard of, and you'd be able to pin them down to within a year or two. Um, now, for historians, this becomes extremely important because things change very quickly, but that helps us pin things down. For example, if you're seeing a machine gun battle, you know you know that this is something like post-World War I. You would know right away this wasn't the, the, the Crimean War or anything like that. You would know that Napoleon didn't have Gatling guns. Um, so it's something that is very obvious to people who are in the know, and it helps us to pin those things down. Now, should we give the apologetic response right away? Yes, please. Well, there's several, and we're probably going to hit on them all. But um, apologists might say something like, well, we don't know for sure. You know, um, the, the machine gun, sure, it might have been invented in 1913 or when it, whenever it was. The Gatling gun is actually older than that. The machine, the gas-fired machine gun. Um, but you know, Napoleon very well could have come up with it. They had all the parts. They 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 they, they could have done it. You know, there's there's no there's nothing that proves that Napoleon <laughs> didn't have machine guns. Just because we haven't seen, yeah, found we, them, we or found heard them about it or anything, doesn't mean that they didn't have them. Now, most people should be groaning right now. I mean, it's a ridiculous argument, um, especially the closer you get to your time. You you know, like like if um, and 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 we're talking about just a few short years, you know. So so like there were big air battles over, um, and there's a reason I'm talking about battles. We're going to get to battles in a little bit. Uh, there are big, huge bad air battles over Europe during World War II, and if somebody was talking about using jet fighters, 
they're really only 15, 17 years off, a very, very short time before jets started being used in combat. Um, but it is such a glaring mistake, and there's no way any legitimate historian would argue that it's possible that you know the French army or somebody was using jets in World War II, even though you're talking about only a tiny, tiny span of time. So I have a question for you um, uh, to make sure I understand the definition uh, correctly. Um, and I'm going to use an example from the Harry Potter series. So in, in Harry Potter book one, you really don't get a sense of when in time that was was supposed to be put. But then all of a sudden, he one of the characters, Harry, is playing with his PlayStation. <laughs> so it very, very clearly dates it to those that very very small section in time when it was popular and it was being released is that still an anachronism well it wouldn't be an anachronism because it, it would it would be very accurate now if somebody were to revamp that the harry potter series and put something in that would didn't exist at the time then that that would be an, an anachronism um so so um these things Okay, so it has to be something that clearly is not possible. Well, it's it's based on the date and the the time sequence that you're trying to prove it. You you just can't insert something modern or in a, from a different era. Right, right, right. So so and if you if you read a book a, a great book like Guns, Germs and Steel, it will it'll walk you through like the propagation of technology. There it has happened in history when technology has moved backwards. But it tends to not ever fully be forgotten. There are some things that we've done that way, but it it, it tends to it tends once a technology um, gets adopted, it tends to be adopted generally because it gives some sort of technological advantage, um, which will give it a militaristic or you know economic advantage Food. to the people. So we can oftentimes trace the um, spreading of certain technologies. And historians and anthropologists and people who really know these things can use those to date cultural involvement and time periods and all that stuff very, very carefully. You know, cause, because once, you know, we went from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, that iron was, was such a, a, an advantage over bronze that it propagated very quickly and most people wouldn't go backwards, you know, and it's, it's just, it's just like today, you know, if somebody showed up with a, uh, you know, like a, an original repeater rifle with the rifling techniques they had, they were actually kind of dangerous, you know, um, because we're much, much better at machining that sort of stuff today. So, so you can track where you have, um, where you have, the creation and propagation of technology, and it, and it's rare for technologies to move backwards. But that that's not really going to be a big issue for for us today. But it is it is to your point, um, Garen. It is the thing that historians use to say, oh, here we have this, so we can date this um the, uh, this culture or this artifact to a certain time frame. Okay, cool. And 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 John, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Book of Mormon is not the only book of scripture that that has anachronisms i mean the bible has anachronisms the bible's full of them yeah um and that's one of the ways that that we can date certain texts like um if you read bur bur biblical scholars they'll tell you things like for example when isaiah was written or when other books were written when the book of moses was written and we could that's one of the ways we can do it um the one, one thing that they tend to screw up all the time is geopolitical stuff so they'll refer to people um, 
You who, mean the books or the like in the Bible? In the Bible, okay. So the the Bible will refer to a people that were nearby, like when the authors were writing it. But during the time period they're writing about, they weren't there. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so so those sort of things. So yeah, they they do show up in in any sort of um, um, pseudopigraphal writing where you're writing something backwards in time. Unless you're really really super careful, you're probably gonna gonna mess things up. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's extremely difficult to do. And like I was talking about a few minutes ago, these things are obvious to us. You know, we 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 know we can look at some silk shirt in in, in your dad's closet and know, you know, what year he bought it probably. But uh, the further you get away from that, the more the more weird it would it would seem. So somebody writing about our time would probably mix up all sorts of things that would just look really ridiculous to us. They would have like cars from the twenties and hats from the fifties with pants from the nineties, and it would just look so crazy to us. But people in the future would be like, "Oh, it's all about the same time frame." <laughs> all right, I think I've labored that one to death. All right, so let's get started at number ten. So these are anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. Um, so, so more specifically, and, 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 and frankly, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. There's a laughable number. Um, I don't know if you guys want to challenge me on that, but there, there really are an insane number of anachronisms. Um, and there's a lot of defenses. We're, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about those when we get here. But what I've tried to do is I've tried to distill this down to what I think are the most important ones, the most anachronistic of all the anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. And we're going to talk about these sort of in categories. So we're going to count from 10 to 1. Um, first of all, 10 is kind of a, a, a one that a lot of people wouldn't expect to see on the list. That's a secret societies. So anybody want to talk about how Book of Mormon uses secret societies? I'll let you explain this one. Well, I, all I remember is the Gadiant and robbers and how um, kind of they would make deals with the devil and and try to thwart the the good people's works. Yeah. So the, and steal from them and the make, Book of Mormon covers um, make a, a kind of mayhem about a thousand years of, of time, but it really the the bulk of the text concentrates on this series of battles that span these couple hundred years, and one of them is there's these people called the Gadiat and robbers who are, um, well, the the if you think about the Iroquois, then you have the Gadiat and robbers. They they're they're dark skinned. They shave their head. They paint their face red. They wear loincloths. Um, they live in the forest. So um, the the Gadiant robbers develop get this great big society, and it's based on these like secret signs and tokens, Oaths. and they they infiltrate the government. They have and, secret meetings, and they have secret meetings, and and they're they're trying to manipulate everything, and they're from the outside society. They want to bring society down and promote all their friends, and and blah 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 blah. Uh, this is a very nineteenth century idea and, and and for those who have listened to like our our masonry um one uh you know we talk about uh, we talk about some of those things the, the that sort of attitude about the other and the secretness and the secret societies and the power that 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 could possibly hold right for example you won't find that idea really in the bible it's not it's not there um, well, and and some of the first talk about it being anti Freemason came originally from Brody, and there there were other people who kind of picked up along that. H- however, in in doing my research, kind of from the believing perspective, the one thing that I was really disappointed in was there were too many people who were focusing on the, what the words secret 
combinations or secret society meant instead of actually confronting it head on and saying, all right, where's, is there a collaboration between Joseph's views or, or the, the views of the time on the anti-Masonic movement or, or, or what, instead of just focusing on the words and, and doing like apologists do sometimes and just trying to mince words to, to dissect everything. So what, what did the apologists say about the words? The apologists contend that, at least the article I read from uh, Daniel Peterson, was basically the, the, the combination of words secret combination and secret society had been used in legal texts previously. And so because it had been used previously, dating all the way back to the, the 17th century, then because that was the case, then see, it's, it's not unusual. I, I think the, the best that I ever read um, was from Nate Oman in the Farms Review, who tried talking a little bit about the, the concept of the anti-Masonic movement and whether that played into Joseph's thinking when he was actually translating the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but you, you've got it right. It, it, it does, of course, ideas don't just spring up overnight and disappear the next day. But but this, the the whole like structure of even the story is something that's very much from that time that that nineteenth eighteenth century time period and the terminology and the way it's referred and the way the way it it plays out is not something that would be recognized in any sort of Mesoamerican text that we have or any sort of um, old Judaic text that we have. Okay, Let, there's more well, interesting and, and- ones. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, and, and going along with that, look, I, I'm glad you put this at number 10. I mean, it is something that does need to be addressed a little bit more. But for me, it really doesn't mix well because it's not like Joseph was completely anti-Mason. I mean, he he had a long line of masonry within his family. And so why would he create something that was anti-Mason if if, if masonry played a huge part within the Smith family clan? That well, just, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. It to doesn't me. necessarily have to be anti-Masonic. And George Miller addressed that saying for Joseph Smith, there was, you know, a righteous sort of mas- masonry and a perverted sort of deluded. Right. And the mainstream masonry was the perverted, deluded sort. R- right. So it was the, basically the secret combinations and it had, that it had some power that Joseph was probably af- afraid of. But I'm saying that's still an idea that comes from Joseph Smith's time. And, and like, and somebody... there were a lot of people afraid of the Masons at that time. Oh, yeah, and other secret societies. And, you know, that's still sort of stuck around with us. It's not quite as, not quite as prevalent. I, it's no, sort of a really fringe no. belief. But, but at the time, you know, fear of Masonry and things like that were really paramount and really a political mo- mo- um, mover at the time. And, and so from my perspective, uh, I, I know it sounds like we're, we're going to move on, but from my perspective, from a believing person's perspective, I would really like to see more research as to where, where does this come from? Instead of, like I said, instead of the stupid apologetic response, which is let's dissect every little nuance instead of hitting the, the point head on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's apologetics. Well, well and, and I think I, that was I, the old way of doing apologetics, though. I mean, there are some apologetics. There are some people that are coming up that are doing a, a better job of trying to confront the issues. But you have old people like Daniel Peterson, who that that's how he made his living, isn't it? I mean, just dissecting people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose. Yeah, but I mean, uh, apologetics. There's a lot of different things in there <laughs> that that we we sort of throw together, and some of it is obviously better than others. Well, the first one sort of relates to the second one, number nine on our list, um, which is the um, legal. The, the legal interactions slash republicanism slash democracy. 
So in the Book of Mormon, they have a system of judges, and they have a very courts-driven um, legal structure. Um, they don't have separation of church and state, and they also have a very democratic sort of uh, will of the people, and, and and that plays out like in King Benjamin's, um, you know, where he's sort of serving at the will of the people, and he's a servant of the people, but the people are involved, and then later you get the the judges, and you get some some scenes in the Book of Mormon that play out like in a Perry Mason sort of courtroom. Um, now we'll all remember that Joseph Smith was of. Uh, fairly familiar with the inside of a courtroom um, uh, before the Book of Mormon was was uh, was printed. So it wouldn't have been something that would have been out, outlandish to him. But that um, the 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 dialectic that they play out is it is it Korahor or is it the Nehor? Um, the the lawyer Nehor? who the lawyer who's who's going through that um, was Korahor. Maybe it's Korahor. Yeah, I think it's Korahor. Anyway, it there's yeah, it's Korahor. there's a few legalistic scenes that the the play out with and and they're fed by those ideas of republicanism and democracy, which once again are very sort of um, post English common law ideas. They're very sort of Enlightenment ideas that 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 Joseph Smith is putting in this. Um, Mesoamerican or somewhere in in the Americas, people, you know, 300 years before Christ, and here they have sort of this Jeffersonian thing going on here. So remember when, um, wasn't it Nephi that the people wanted as a king and he declined? Yeah. Um, It wasn't that very similar to what George Washington had done not too long before Joseph Smith's time, right? Yeah, Joseph Smith was was born in eighteen oh five, and you know, so so for him, he was closer to well, he was a if you take today, he's about the same distance from from that as we are from Vietnam, you know, right? So so it was something that was fresh on people's minds. People in the church that Joseph Smith interacted with had been in the Revolutionary War, yeah. So so those things weren't like ancient ideas to him; those were things that were were in the present. Right, but I thought it was interesting that later on there are plenty of kings, and they're even um, go from from um, father to son. Don't they have inheritance? Um, yeah, that, rule? that's that's always a, yes. a common thread. Which is which is you know more kind of ancient. Well, I, I it's an idea that's been around constantly. Um, but but and and yeah, Joseph Smith uses that but he he's describing this idealistic society where the the kingdom and the kingship and the hereditary rule are sort of merged um in a positive way with the church and with the priesthood and yeah, but with how is democratic that anachronistic principles. i mean wasn't wasn't that basically how the jewish society well i'm not was? saying that's anachronistic i'm saying all the legalistic ideas and the ideas of democracy and 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 that of of sort of a republic so state that kind he of the things that he weaves in and out of the um, stuff that isn't an anachronistic, yeah, there yeah. are things in there that are. Yeah, yeah, I'm not saying all, everything is. And and one About of the big them. themes is the the whole concept of the voice of the people. Uh, it, it gets brought up a lot, but but kind of going along with what you were saying, Zelfa, as far as you know, going from father to son. It seemed like these judges, from from what I researched and, and just from reading it, it seemed like they all really had a life tenure, and some of them chose to. To give it up, Alma chose to give it up, but that's that sounds more like a monarchy than than mm-hmm. a republican concept. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's interesting when you read through here because you can definitely find the anachronisms that would say um, it looks like he was taking a lot of the existing 
political things that he would be seeing in the 1800s in the area and trying to insert them. But then at the same time, as you're reading through, and, and I've, I've done this, with, had a few conversations with people about this, it's like you can use it to prove a very liberal society where you're taking care of the poor, you, everybody works and, and all the money goes to, to take care of the, the less privileged and th- stuff like that. And then at the very other side of it, you can use a lot of the Book of Mormon to argue for a very um, capitalistic um, Republican, uh, almost Tea Party type of a, a thing. So you could almost argue both sides of this and say you could find anachronistic um, mentions in there for all types of different political structures in there. Oh, oh definitely. Oh. And, and 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 my contention is that the ideas of the of the new formed republic and a lot of those those ideas that that were, that were floating around and political things just sort of bled into the Book of Mormon in a hundred different places. And but but let's be clear what the argument is. The argument is that if this book were discovered by somebody who knew nothing at all about it and read the book, then let's say they were an expert in Mesoamerica or an expert in Judaic studies or an expert in the Bible. I'm saying that they would say, oh, this is a 19th century book. And one of the reasons they would say that 19th century book is because all these 19th century political ideas and political stylings, the way they describe the judges and the way they describe the courts and the way that people interact about the law itself, the way they treat the law. Hell's bells, that's even a, a, an anachronism. I mean, there there wouldn't have been like a legal code or 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 judges who would interpret the legal code in Mesoamerica. John, I don't remember where Hell's Bells appears in the Book of Mormon. (laughs) That's when ACDC has the... Oh, uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Mars Bar. All right, well, let me me challenge you on this, John, because because from a believing perspective, and I'm I'm worried that I'm going to completely bury myself here, but from a believing perspective, can't I say... We, we talked about the loose versus tight translation theory. Can't you sit there and say with, with the factors surrounding Joseph Smith's translation, that was all he knew was these 19th century concepts. So he was trying to put it in the in the best way possible that he knew given his surroundings and what he'd seen around him. That, that's an okay he was argument. trying to describe it as best he could. I think that's a fine argument. I would just say you have to pick a side. You, you have to pick either loose or tight. And what, what gets me um, – been out of shape about that is that people seem to code switch back and forth between the two on whichever suits their their needs, and I would still contend that the two are mutually exclusive. But yeah, you you, you can argue that that when Joseph Smith, well, for, okay, first of all, you have to have a, a def- definitive theory of the translation process. Once you have that theory of the translation process, you can use that theory to describe problems in the Book of Mormon. But the problem is we're we're still doing it post hoc. We're taking problems in the Book of Mormon and then we're creating a theory of the translation. On the fly. And then the next problem we have, we'll create another theory. So I would just say, for the apologist, create a theory of how the Book of Mormon was translated and by what means. Then we can explain anachronisms. And you're, you are absolutely right. Depending on how it, was, how it was translated, that would account for some of these. If Joseph Smith was given great creative latitude that only the Spirit produced the, the general outline of what happened and that he described it in terms of his time. That that would be acceptable, and it would be historically correct because if you look at um like medieval paintings of the um like the nativity, you know they always show like Mary wearing like a whipple and stuff. You know they like they didn't have an idea that hey uh, uh, fifteen hundred years ago they dressed differently than we do now, but that does date the painting, right? It still does say this is a fifteenth century painting and not a painting from the time of the nativity. Um, so if we're going to argue that, we have to we have to explore the ramifications of it. 
I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. But I mean, I it's it's an okay it's an okay defense, which I, is what they use a lot uh, on a lot of these. That that Joseph was just interpreting it. Y- yes, the Joseph for was using his common um, understanding. Correct. Um, and there are some problems with that, and we'll probably get there. Well, what we don't have is if you're going to do that, how do you get cumulo? I mean, how do you get stuff that <laughs> didn't exist De- Deseret, in this world? Deseret. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I agree. That's just, that is a problem. Well, do we want to talk about the hippopotamuses right now? We <laughs> um, don't want to wait till the horses. All right, if somebody will get to horses, remind me to talk about the hippopotamuses. All right, number eight is sort of related again to what we've been talking about, and that's um, I, I would say I, I have it written down as King James English. Um, and we can talk about language in general, but I really think the anachronism here, uh, absolutely glaring, is the use of King James English. Now, unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go into um, the King James Bible, but um, the King James Bible was commissioned. But I will anyway. Well, we, we, we just, <laughs> I'm not going to get into the details. What I was saying was was commissioned and published in 1611. They'd worked on it for like a lot of years. The problem is that those of you carrying around a King James Bible, I hate to tell you this, but the English in your King James Bible is not the English from the 1611 King James Bible. People keep futzing with it. So, so people talk about this King James Bible as if, hey, look, here is the, the codex of, of English translation. And you go read the King James Bible, and, it's, and it, is, it is some crazy language because the language has changed a lot. So, and the King James Bible itself was not even a translation. It was more like a commentary. They took some other translations. They took some scholars, and they, and they, they took what they had. It was, for, for the time, it was a really great production. But they threw all this stuff in. And sometimes, for example, they didn't like dirty terms in the Bible. So they would put like 16th and 17th century euphemisms for, for things that, that didn't show up in the that weren't in the original Hebrew text at all. And, and so they, they pruned and edited the text. The problem is that language, which was just this this time slice shows up in the Book of Mormon inexplicably. There is absolutely no reason for the Book of Mormon to exist in King James English. Okay, so let me make sure I understand, because you, you went down several different avenues there, and I want to make sure I understand the timeline. Is what you're saying is that we, we went for several centuries with one with a very limited one. They came out with the 1611 version that had some very unique language to it. And then shortly thereafter, they mellowed it again into what we have today as the King James Bible. And it's different than what Joseph Smith had to make the text in the Book of Mormon. That's well, the way right. I, I, th- I threw a curveball at you. I, I was, I was try, I preemptively trying to fight the argument that... The, the the argument people might say is that King James English is like the English of the Restoration. Joseph's, or it's, Joseph's no, time. It's somehow Wait. higher inspired. You know, like when I went to Sunday school when I was a, when I was a little kid um, back in the seventies, they they still taught us about Martin Luther and stuff in primary. You can find old primary manuals that have like that's right. So 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 at the time they weren't so the church wasn't so insular. So they taught things like Martin Luther was inspired by God and he paved huh? the way for the Protestant Reformation, which made way for the Restoration. So there's a lot of people who argue that the, the King James Bible was in fact inspired, and the language of the King James Bible is the inspired language of the Restoration. That's still in correlated material today. Yes, um, and um, um, 
is it Clark? Ru- J. Ruben Clark. He wrote a whole book on this. Um, mm-hmm. um, and you're supposed to pray in that language. Too, you're supposed to as pray in that language. But you know, mm-hmm. for example, I'll give you an example of where we screw it up. In in at the time, um, there was a familiar form for you and a more formal form for you. And the the formal form for you was you. And the familiar form for you was ye. So if you read the New Testament, when Jesus is saying you, he is using the formal one. And when he's saying ye, he's using the informal one. And we have that ass backwards now. Um, mm-hmm. And and people, <laughs> people will say, you shouldn't say you when you're talking to God. You should say ye. Um, and we've completely screwed that up. And and so people reading the Bible, the King James Bible today, read it wrong. They absolutely read it wrong because in 1611 it was that way. And and you can there's all sorts of examples of this stuff. There's words that don't even mean the same thing anymore that 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 they were reading wrong. But it's that earlier version. It's that it's that really um, tight 1611 version that's that that was available in the 18. 18- 20s as the, the it was the one of standard them. one so, so that's so, what that's what show that's the language that shows up in the book of mormon right well it's, right? it's one of them so so all along they kept messing with the king james bible um so so a new a new a new um printing of it might have changed some of the language like um what i can't remember the term anymore but the the in the original king james bible the the pro, the lord's prayer has the word schwa schwa in it which we don't have anymore in English. So, you, you know. Schwa, schwa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't remember what it meant, but it's not there anymore. They took it out. Um, um, so, did Joseph Smith's version have schwa, schwa well, or was it no, taken no, out before? No, it didn't. But my, my point is that Joseph Smith has this book that he's translating in 1830 into English. And it's this ancient um, language written in a reformed Egyptian reflecting some kind of Mesoamerican language that was based on Hebrew and Egyptian. From, and here, from... King James English shows up. King James English has no place whatsoever in that book. Unless, let, let me throw this out there, unless that was the language that people have associated with, quote-unquote, the language of God. That's that's the language that people have associated with with holy writ, with holy scripture and so that is it's almost as if that is the way that they can signify okay this is this is more than just some a, a book this is supposed to be a, a higher power this is supposed to be something that's more than just a weekly periodical okay so let's dig into that a little bit so so what what you're what you're sort of saying uh, is that people associated that language with religiousness with holiness so when Joseph Smith wrote the book, he chose to write it in a way that they would see it as holy. I don't think this is a, an argument that bodes well for the book. Well, here's what would be a better thing for the book. There's all these strange terminologies and turns of phrases in there. And as we start getting down the time and learning more about archaeology, we find out these are ter- phrases and stuff from Mesoamerica or from, you know, from ancient – because from, from – that, that, that have more ancient origins. The now, now, the apologist will jump on any time the Book of Mormon uses one of those phrases, even though it might be in King James English. It might be something that Joseph Smith very well could have riffed on out of, out of, the, um, out of the King James Bible. But, but what I'm saying is, it, it, sounds like, it sounds like your argument is basically, it didn't follow exactly the, the original 
uh, grammar and, and everything associated with the King James Version of the Bible, and therefore that's not any good. But I'm sitting here saying it's it's those same concepts, because you, you take a King James Version of the Bible and, and use those same types of, of phrases and, and the different, you know, thee, thou, thou, you know, all that stuff. You say that to even people in 2011, and they'll recognize the fact that you're talking about some sort of Christian uh, literature, some sort of Christian scripture. Okay. And so, so you're in a saying sense, that I'm Joseph used that language so that people would recognize it as Christian scripture? I'm saying it was it was a language that would be familiar to people. They would recognize it and say, "Okay, this is this is from God because it's using the same types of language instead of just regular language." Right. And I maybe suppose. and maybe and, and maybe for the time for for the 1820s and 30s, that's that's what was needed. I mean, because they didn't you, you look at all the thousands of different translations of the Bible that we have today in 2011. I'm pretty sure they didn't have thousands of different translations. I'm pretty sure that the King James Version was probably the main translation that most people were focusing on. So let me ask you this. The 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon is full of bumpkin grammar. Of the, Engli- the English grammar is really c- terrible. When they're not quoting the Bible, the English grammar is really awful. They fixed that. So... If the why don't they fix the King James? Why don't they translate that into normal English? I mean, they they are prophets, seers, and revelators, are they not? Because it still speaks to people's um, um, idea of what comes what comes from God. I suppose that that's that's the way that I that I look at it. Because so, I think um, isn't Grant Hardy? Isn't he trying to put out something along the lines of a a normal translation? Um, there have been several that have been written. Yeah, there's been several, but I think that's that's used to work out. I mean, 30, 40 years ago, you could make the argument that says the King James Bible and the language of it is kind of the accepted language of of Christianity. And the Catholics used it, the Protestants used it, everybody used the King James Version. The problem that, that, that we run into is that other than the Gideons and the Mormons, pretty much everybody has moved away from that version of the Bible. Therefore, the language of Scripture is no longer, in 2011, it's no longer. You, you can't use that argument anymore. In Mormonism, you can, but we're the only ones that still say, you know, use the, that formal Elizabeth, Elizabethan type of language. I agree. And there's two reasons that everybody else has moved away from it. One, the English language changes. It changes every, you know, listen to old record. We were listening to an old recording last night of uh, Burns oh. and Gracie um, from the 30s. It's L- a radio show. The language changes constantly. So, it was from so, the 40s. It was from the 40s, you're right. So we have to we have to keep updating um, translations to make them match the way people understand language. That, that's one reason. Secondly, um, the King James Bible was full, was full of mistakes. Um, we we have discovered more manuscripts. We've done better translation of the Hebrew. Um, so so people move well, away from two. That's the be- that's your better reason. Well, and, John. and and this is this is where I want to circle back around. So there are specifics, and and we won't get into them on the podcast. We don't have time. Um, and especially like in the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ returns, in um, he redelivers the Sermon on the Mount, and he reproduces some translation errors from the from the King James Bible. Now, if Joseph Smith was sitting on this text that were written down by scribes at the time, and, and, and the Book of Mormon was to be a New Testament of Jesus Christ, 
There's no reason not, why... Not another one, a copy of the other one. Right. There's no reason that Joe Smith should be reproducing King James errors into the Book of Mormon. He should have the pristine text because according to the Book of Mormon, we have a clear provenance of the, of the, of the writings and they weren't allowed to be corrupted like the Bible was according to Mormon theology. <sighs> so number seven on the list... Hey, hang on. Hang on just a sec. Before we go on, let me... Let me just support you in in this one from you know good old um, brother or president and the stake president uh, Grant Hardy. He he basically will totally agree that this is a problematic issue. Um, that the having the language of the King James Bible within the Book of Mormon, he says, yeah, that this is something that we have to to deal with. Um, apologetics will, will go one and, you know, the believers will look at it one way and a scholarly approach is to, to say, you know, there's a, a harder and a, and a tougher way that you have to kind of accept. And, and he, he definitely looks at this as a, as an issue. So just in support from a, from a scholarly side. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. And when you get the nuances of language, and we're going to talk about those when we talk about Isaiah in a minute and the Christology. Um, the language becomes a big problem. Okay, number seven is post-Christian concepts. And by this I mean concepts from after the Christian era. So, so, so Jesus dies, and the, the, the church obviously gets started, and then lands in Rome, and then spreads all across Europe, and eventually across the world. And there are developments all the way along, you know, much like I talked about weaponry at the top of the podcast. There are developments in Christian concepts in Christian theology. And one of the, the huge ones came from Augustine and then Constantine as, as Greek and Roman philosophy um, was sort of merged into um, Christianity. And Greek concepts started to morph and, and merge with, with particular Christian concepts. A great example of that is the concept of hell. Um, there is no concept of hell in the in the Bible, really. Um, there's some references to it, um, sort of. Uh, but but the, the the way that it came about, like in the in the in the in the Middle Ages and and in the the Roman time, was really more of a merging of the idea of the of the um, Hades and sort of the the Greek ideas, and those were developed long after the Christian the Christian period. Well, those of you who've read the Book of Mormon know the Book of Mormon loves hell. It talks about burning in hell all the time. So, so there's an example of an idea that just would not have been around in the 6th century BC at, at all. It didn't come about until um, Christianity merged with Greek philosophy. And reading the book, you see right away that, hey, this is a Reformation, this is a post-Reformation book. This is, this is not an ancient text. I think my one argument for that is the fact that that you're sitting here saying that a concept like like hell is is solidified and and that no one else has talked about this, but you can't tell me that that people haven't talked about some sort of a a uh, the whole concept of being a good person versus a bad person, why you should do it if there's going to be a you know the, all these these questions of mercy and justice and and heaven and hell, th- those weren't simply post Reformation concepts or or even even post-Christ concepts, those have got to be around, and, and I haven't done the research, but I would think that through all different areas of, of whether they be religion or even cultural folklore, these concepts are around. Uh, 
Sure, but you know, you're you're mixing a whole lot of stuff in there. You're saying concepts of like behaving or doing God's will or you know honoring your parents. Punished for that, you, you know. For but those but things. the idea of in the afterlife, which is sort of a sketchy idea in the Old Testament anyway, it's not really well defined, and that you'll be punished forever, and that you'll burn. Or that you'll be under the dominion of the devil. You know, all these things are sort of ideas that developed from a whole cacophony of ideas that came that merged together um, in Rome, and they just don't have any 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 place. It's 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 sort of my machine guns again. Sure, you can theorize that 600 years before Christ, a group of people independently of of like Greek philosophy came up with some of these ideas or that or that all the Zoroastrian ideas that, that leaked in somehow got over there too yeah but th- to me this one's easy to argue from the um, believing side because um, the Book of Mormon is a pure um, book from like it's more directly from God and maybe for some reason those concepts were left out of the Old Testament but God really did teach those concepts all the way along. No, you're absolutely right. That is a re- apologetic response. The, the, re- the counter-response that I'd give is we see the development of the idea. You know, it, it's, it's, so, it's sort of like... Yeah, but, but if you're a believer, you're going to... You have to believe that, that God gave that idea to humans. But, but the idea itself has a genesis. Well, it, it's, 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 like, it's like if somebody is digging around in Vermont... And they find a foundation to a house, and it has a brick chimney, like the, the ruins of a brick chimney. And the person says, this house is 4,000 years old. It was put here by the, by the Vikings. You would say, Vikings didn't make bricks. <laughs> you, you know. Um, and you could say, well, sure, but these were Vikings who were inspired by God. God taught them to make bricks. Right. You'd you be can like, always well, say that, right? Yeah, you can always say that. And you're like, well, the, there's, why but would they do that? That doesn't make sense. And, and why, because we, we know when bricks came about. We know how they came about. We know the history of bricks. We can, we, we can, we can see that whole arc. We, it's not like the idea just suddenly appears. So, so an idea that has a genealogy and then suddenly appears 800 years before that, that, that just doesn't hold any water academically. Academically. Now, now you, but you start going down because you have a great one that, that illustrates this point, Zilpha. Which your, one? Your the synagogue? Well, um, let's see. In, in Alma, it states that Alma and Amulek went forth preaching repentance to the people in their synagogues, which were built after the manner of the Jews. But the Jews didn't start building synagogues until the earliest one that's known is uh, 150 BC. Right, which is well after the period of the separation at 600 BC. Right. So, so Alma, writing this, wouldn't have said, in their synagogues, which were built after the manner of the Jews. And it's not just that the buildings of a synagogue didn't come around until 150 years. The whole concept of the Judaic right. organization of using synagogues right. it didn't come and, and, around. and rabbis and that sort of thing wasn't at the time of, of Nephi. Yeah, it happened after the destruction of the temple. Right. So there's a lot of post-Christian concepts, and, and we, we just sort of centered on, on, on two of them. But this is one of those things. Um, uh, here's another great example that a lot of people don't, don't, don't recognize. It was a hot debate in the 19th century of baptism for the remission of sins. Um, 
so you get baptized and that washes you clean from sin. That was a theological argument that only spanned for a short time. And as a matter of fact, it's pretty much been dropped by most people today. Like if you go become a Methodist, they don't really talk about washing your sins away through baptism. Baptism is a sign of like entering into the kingdom and accepting Jesus Christ as your as your Lord and Savior. So so there was a short period of time where this idea, this debate of baptism for the remission of sins existed theologically, and bang, it shows up in this book that's supposedly, you know, fifteen hundred years old. Yeah, but again, that's the the, you know, the pure teachings of, of Christ that you're getting through the Book of Mormon, which wasn't tampered with by all these, you know, faulty people for all those years. And it would show up in the Bible if the Bible was translated correctly. Well, Alexander Campbell said it. You know, Campbell, of course, was the Campbellites, which um, he, um, Sidney Rigdon was a follower of him. It was a big American movement at the time. And when he read the Book of Mormon, he said, it's interesting how these ancient people were concerned about all the exact same theological questions that we're concerned with right today. Mm-hmm. And and Alexander's um, argument holds more water today because those arguments aren't very interesting to us now. So I guess you could argue as an apologist that God somehow in the um, churches, which he believed were an abomination, because God said all these churches were abomination, that they just became concerned about the key theological elements for the short window of time so Joseph Smith could absorb them and put them in a book which supposedly had already been written 2,000 years earlier. That's the argument. No, right? you're 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 getting that all twisted. <laughs> <laughs> well, and going along with with Campbell too. Campbell was a big proponent of of pointing out the the anachronisms. He um he wrote a lengthy response in a in a newspaper back in 1831 talking about all these anachronisms, where he brings up a whole bunch of things that we're talking about, including some of these these. Uh, uh, these different concepts, and so he's he's really one of the the people who started this whole vision of anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. Well, I think I think people who are knowledgeable, and and I'm not one of them, but people who have studied theology, um, that will find the Book of Mormon completely, utterly unconvincing as an ancient book because they will see all of these all these ideas. This is something that. Um, Grant Palmer has pointed out, you know, in, in his book, that people who who understand know the genealogy of these ideas, and there 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 is a history of that that you can follow as they develop through the Catholic Church and through um, the Reformation. And and the problem that a lot of Mormons have is they've only been schooled in Mormon thinking, so they see these ideas supposedly happening in Mesoamerica, and it seems plausible to them. But to other people, it'd be like, wait a minute, that idea, you know, developed after this. You know this council in in six hundred um, A.D. and da 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 da. Okay, are we ready to move forward? Sure. All right, number six: um, grapes and wine, and other fun. No, well, I'll, I'll <laughs> the the Book of Mormon actually has tons and tons of anachronism when it comes to fruits and vegetables, but and gra- grains. And grains, and just you're just talking. Um, are you talking just about these two particular things, or are you well, going to go down? The- I want to focus in on these. And there's whole lists out okay. there. I, I, Stuart Ferguson made a big list. And there's been other lists compiled. Um, so, so I mean, let's be clear, because um, this this is this is confusing to a lot of people. There were all sorts of fruits and vegetables that grew in the New World, and before the 15th century. There wasn't really inter- any interaction between the old world and the new world. So there are all these old world. 
um, plants and vegetation that had evolved in the old world and the new world ones. For example, you might think Italian food is really tomatoey, but it had no tomatoes in it before the new world because tomatoes were a new world crop. Of course, they um, the Europeans adapted uh, adopted the most um, productive ones, you know, like maize, corn, and pumpkins, and squash, and stuff like that, that is very um, American. Well, there are a whole host of things that weren't available in the Americas. And so when we find, for example, ancient pottery shards that have bits of seed or bits of pollen or, or, or things like that on it, we find burial sites, we find ovens that are archaeological sites, we find... Um, um, garbage dumps from archaeological sites, we can know which things were here and which things weren't. And then, of course, a, a, a botanist could go and explain even further. I mean, they can track the evolution of, of, of all sorts of things. This is something in science that we understand very well. So we know what was here in the New World and what was not here in the New World. And one thing that sure as hell wasn't here in the New World were, were, were wine-producing grapes. Now, there was one variety of grapes um, – that that was in the new world but there is no evidence that you could make wine out of it and you couldn't make wine out of it using the traditional methodologies so you with modern technology they can make um they can make a wine out of that grape but there's no evidence that that ever happened before say 100 years ago or 200 years ago or whenever they started doing that so the one of the reasons I bring this up is wine figures into the Book of Mormon in several places, not just in Isaiah, but it's a story element. And to make wine, you have to have a whole wine culture. You have to take and pick the grapes, and you have to um, squash them. You have to squash them. You have to ferment them. You have to have barrels. You have to have you have to have a, a lot of and technology. And it wouldn't be like wild grapes. You wouldn't you wouldn't get enough grapes to make wine or to make it worth making wine from wild grapes. Right. So, you'd want to cultivate that. Yeah, yeah. So when you, whenever you're taking something and you're distilling it down like that, it takes a lot of input of the of the of the fruit. Um and there's other evidences that we have like people who are native american um meaning from top to bottom don't have the same genetic tolerance for alcohol that um, say Europeans did. So there's other circumstantial evidence like that that shows that they it, never had it, it never existed. So in all the writings, we don't see any culture of 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 wine making, of wine bottling, of wine cast making, of putting it anywhere. Maybe, of fermenting. maybe it was just grape juice. And uh, the and the cultures that had um you know wine and grapes, they they put them all over their fres frescas is that what it's called <laughs> or that's the soft drink frescos anyway oh yeah, yeah. pottery but, and but no. they all but the old standby argument about grape juice versus wine why why couldn't that apply here i mean well, i've got they, they i've could, got grape plants in my backyard and i, I just think, go out and if, take if, the if grapes you do and that squish them and, well then you know if you put do that and put it i mean you don't have any refrigeration you put it in a jar on your on your counter how long before it goes bad I mean, it's just—it's a matter of days, weeks, yeah, max. Mm -hmm. So, so but there would have been preservation techniques. They had preservation techniques. Exactly, there would have been. There would have been a culture of those preservation techniques. Which and is as a matter of fact, making. alcohol is very caloric dense, and it's preserved. It holds. That's why in some of the oldest fres um, frescoes <laughs> or like uh, hieroglyphics or whatever, you can see. Like you can go to. Um, Egyptian tombs and find pictures of them making beer. It's because beer was so valuable to them because in times of shortage of crops, it gave a very caloric, dense 
um, food. It helped sustain civilization. It was extremely important in the evolution of culture. And like you said, it was a it was a big production. It was a big part of your culture. If you're gonna if you're gonna invest that much time and energy into it, it becomes part of your culture. Right. Well, it never ever was anywhere in the in the Americas. The grape that that they used, um, it wasn't cultivated. That I, I don't think. I think it was a wild grape. I'm, I think I mean, it's a wild I think that's grape. A stretch. I'm not. I'm not real. I'm not. Real I don't think they ever familiar um, with it. Cultivated grapes, but there is no evidence whatsoever, culturally or, or anywhere, that there was a wine making tradition. So that any mention of of wine, um, and vineyards, in the Book of Mormon would not really make sense to someone like Moroni, for example, because. By the time it got to Moroni, it was thousands of years since they had been in a culture that had um, grapes and, and wine and vineyards. He wouldn't know what in the world they were even talking about. It wouldn't make any sense at all to him. Correct. What's the apologetic for this one? I've not looked it up. Um, the I, I gave part of it. The one I've seen is that, oh, there were grapes. Um, another one is, well, we haven't found the Nephite civilization, so you can't say that they didn't have great production. Um, so it's the it's the lack of evidence is evidence that we haven't disproven it yet. Um, but they, we do have quite a bit of, like you said earlier, about other foods. Um, we've gone into the garbage pits in Mesoamerica and 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 turned up stuff. Oh yeah. Ha, has there been any research into what they were? drinking yeah i mean we know what they were eating but what were they yeah was yeah. it just yeah, water they, or did they have root beer no they had they had their own mild forms of they 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 drank um uh, a chocolate. tea a tea made of cocaine for example that was a, that they was had a stimulant chocolate was chocolate was a big deal mm-hmm. for them right so so i mean we and but we are begging the question of of <laughs> was it the, the the mesoamericans you know the other thing about like w- um, wine culture is we are extremely good at agriculture these days um, we have all sorts of um, irrigation techniques, and we have um, fertilizers, and we can grow things just about anywhere. But 400 years ago, you kind of grew things where they could grow. So a large portion of the American continent couldn't even support that sort of agriculture. There's a reason that all the wine in the United States really comes from California, because it's got the right climate for it. Even though you can grow grapes in, you know, in Lehigh, Utah, it would be hard to set up a vineyard here. And, and Garen, going along with that, one of the reasons why I really haven't said anything, there, there are a couple of other apologetic responses. However, I'll be honest, I was a business guy in college. I didn't study uh, horticulture or anything like that. They, they reference a lot of different types of, of plants. One of them is called pulque. Uh, they, they talk about some stuff with honey that was done in northern Mexico. But uh, I, I can't speak too much about that because – I don't know. Uh, they didn't really use honey because honey, honey, the honeybees were imported from Europe too. All right, well, go, go. yeah, but there's a quote from Cortez that says that the the what? Where did he go? The Aztecs were selling wax, beeswax, and honey in their marketplace. I'd have to, I'd have to look at it. And and, and there are, there's also a Spanish friar who talks specifically about they. Their wine they make of honey and water and the root of a certain tree they grow for that purpose. That's from back in 1566. So there is something out there, but you know, there, but it's I, not I, the I grapes and you, vineyards kind of wine. Yeah, and I will give you non-believers this: 
the the evidence <laughs> isn't overwhelming on the believing side for grapes and wine. It's, right. it's a tough one. And Zilpha sort of glossed over the the important point because this happens several times in the Book of Mormon. It happens again when there's a big treaty on on um, olive presses and olive coal. Is it oh, um, yeah. is it Benjamin who does that? This is a couple hundred oh, years after they and, left and the, the, the Mediterranean. People would be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> what do you mean, all of the branches? <laughs> it, it wouldn't, you know, we live in the age of like encyclopedias. And so we learn about all these things. But before that age, if somebody was giving you a metaphor on olive production, you, you'd be like, I have no idea what you're even talking about. And then for us, it's there this, were no olives it's this over here. elaborate... Um, metaphor you know the the olive press is a metaphor for for christ's uh sacrifice and it's been that way for hundreds of years but but these nephites they they would have had no idea what you're talking about hey so here here's a question does it have to be wine of a particular fruit or could it have been Apple wine or berry. It, it could wine. have been, but but I w- I would give the same objection, which is there's no real evidence of a fermentation culture from any sort of stuff like that. But you know you're 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 getting Joseph Smith knew the word for cider, right? Because he drank it. So if if the if the word in the Book of Mormon on the golden plates said cider. Why in the world would he translate it to be wine? Yeah, but I've had Loganberry wine, and it's definitely not from a grape. It's from a berry. But, but uh, he probably would have specified berry wine. I don't know. Once again, and, and I'm, I'm not an expert on winemaking, but we can make all sorts of alcohols now with modern technology that you have to go back 2,500 years ago. The Really, the only ones they could use are the ones that had enough sugars and were... Basically, you could put the grapes in a cask and they would turn themselves into wine. And, you know, you could, you can make wine out of all sorts of stuff today if you apply the right sort of technology, technology they didn't have. Well, and plus, you you would need so many berries. And I guess, I guess maybe if you lived in a berry rich area, but I just, we don't need to go into them at all, but maybe we could just mention the barley and the wheat. Is there... Anything else? We're an hour in. Well, that's all I was going to say. And figs um, are mentioned in the Book of Mormon. There were no figs. Yeah, there's a whole whole list of all the stuff they mentioned that that has no New World equivalency. So, that's all. Okay, number five, Isaiah. (laughs) I'm bored already. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just by saying that word. Isaiah? Yes. Oh, I thought you meant you That was always the it. hardest part to get through in the book. Oh, of I see what you're saying. I thought you were saying you're bored with this no, podcast. No, I'm not bored with this podcast. I'm <laughs> oh, okay. bored with the, <laughs> the get on with it, concept already. of Isaiah. All right. So, the, um, Garen, why, why don't you give us an overview of the problem of Isaiah? So, Isaiah really becomes problematic in the fact that not only is it is it in the language of the King James Bible, but it includes a key section that, um, and, and the section is, is really comes from Second Isaiah, it's the chapters of 40 to 55, and basically what there is is scholars for really over a period of, of about the last hundred years have really attributed this time, this, this period of Isaiah, to about a hundred years after Lehi's exodus from um, the old world. So there's, it, 
the events that he would have take, had to have taken with him in the brass plates just simply hadn't happened yet. And um, that, that really becomes the, the anachronistic part is he's including um, a, a piece of history that hadn't happened until after they left the old world. Right. And, and that's, that starts becoming a, a really major problem. It's time out of place. And the other problem is that scholars now identify more than one author for the book of Isaiah. Um, and that's a whole other thing. You can go. That's a whole other thing. It's just this timing issue of the fact that it was written around 500 <laughs> BC um, at the time of the exile. Well, I, I think that's important, but I also think it's important that the Book of Mormon quotes as from Isaiah sections that scholars now attribute to two different authors. So mm-hmm. Book of Mormon is using Isaiah as if it's a single writer, and because of the narrative of the Book of Mormon, you would have to assume, because the the time of Lehi is very close to the time of Isaiah, so you don't have hundreds of years of, of gap there. So you, you're absolutely right. Some of that writing comes from after the time that Lehi would have left Jerusalem, and it attributes writings that we the scholars now acknowledge come from two different sources as coming from the same source. There's yeah, a, as, Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, as, as well as, and, and this is always something that's bothered me, even as a believer, as well as this whole concept of, I've I've tried to read different uh, analysis and commentary as to why these huge chunks of Isaiah are included, and I've honestly I've never found anything reasonable that that says this is why this was all put in here, and and that's always something that confused me. And then when I started researching more about the whole concept of the multiple Isaiah authors and seeing how it's laid out, granted it's not switching, and and this is Bible geekiness, but it's not switching between. Deutero and Proto Isaiah, as as far as you know, one chapter, boom, boom, boom. There's sections where it's Deutero, there's sections where it's Proto Isaiah, but but both John, you and Garen make good points. This whole concept of it 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 does switch, and and there is evidence for Deutero Isaiah saying, you know, it, it's a different author, a different time period, and and how does that work with everything? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there there are a lot of biblical scholars who would probably put this at the top of the list. Um, I've met several, you know, scholarly critics who say this is the this is the death nail for for the Book of Mormon, because yeah, for me this would be the top of the list. This was my number one. You would put this at number one. I would absolutely put this as my number one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, I think that the other weird part of it is is there's a lot of the parts that he uses from Isaiah. Some of it he quotes directly and just and just lays it right out. And then uh, about half of the quoted verses he puts, they're actually different. He's actually changing, clarifying or expanding what Isaiah does. And it's almost like he's he's trying to uh, fix what he thinks are errors. Or, or just to provide more explanation for what is going on in the original text. And so that's the other kind of odd thing is, is this, this inclusion of the word for word, and then also the just the changing of it. it. That just kind of bothers me as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, number four. Uh, This is sort of related to number seven, our post-Christian concepts, but I wanted to really pull this one out. Um, The Christology. Um, so, so what, what, what I mean by this is the Book of Mormon has a particular concept of the man, Jesus Christ, and of Christianity in general. 
and it's putting this Christianity in somewhere in the Americas, you know, circa 2500 to, to 1500. This Christology is really super duper anachronistic. Um, let me give you, let me give you a, a, an example. There's a chapter in the Book of Mormon, and, and I, I don't have it in front of me, that, that refers to, in the same chapter, in the same writings, refers to both Christ, it says something like, Christ is the Messiah. Or something like that. It, it uses the word Christ and uses the word Messiah. Of course, the word Messiah is is Hebrew for the anointed or the anointed one, and the word Christ is the Greek word for the anointed or the anointed one. The, those two words taking on their own independent meaning only happens after you know, like in into the into the the, the Middle Ages. That that in Hebrew there was only one word. There was no. Jesus or Christ is the Messiah. That 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 would be complete nonsense. It'd be like saying, I don't know, red is the red. You know, there's no there's no um, synonym for it. Um, so for those two words to show up in the Mesoamerican language, whatever language the Book of Mormon's written in, you must ask. What two words was Joseph Smith translating? How could they possibly have two words for being anointed that refer to, you know, words that didn't come into use until really after Christ's death? Likewise, the term Jesus Christ, they almost use the term as if it's a first and last name in the Book of Mormon, which became a very common way to refer to to him by the time Joseph Smith was around, but it would have been you do all the time. I what I'm hey, I'm I'm a product of my time, <laughs> but it would have it would have been a very strange thing to do because the word Christ wouldn't have had any meaning for them. It would have been Jesus. It'd been Joshua the Anointed or, right. or whatever. Like and, when in I guess in Second Nephi, Jacob says that an angel told him that the name of the Messiah would be Christ. Yeah, there, there you go. There, there there it is right there. So so well, that it, that's it's set, over and over again too. And, I think I. I I think every time that when you see pre-3rd Nephi, every occurrence that you see of either the word Jesus or Christ is probably, it could be considered an anachronism. Now, if it says the the Messiah or the Holy One or or the something like that, that was language that was used in the Old Testament. Because there was, you were looking towards the Savior, but, but, but they were looking, looking towards, towards the savior. a guy named Yeah, you weren't looking towards a guy named Jesus. They were looking towards a a, a, a savior, probably. And I'm I'm not a scholar. It'd be more the redeemer they were looking right. for, the one who would redeem the kingdom of God, the one who would deliver them from their enemies and establish them in their rightful place. But like you they said, they would not have known his name. Yeah, and they use Christ as his name, which uh, wasn't his name. But they started using that when in the. Uh, it must have been in the early or... Christian period. I I don't I don't know the answer. I don't know, to that but yeah, certainly that was not his name, and that's not how people referred to him. For so so these they are said more... the Christ, but not Christ, right? Which they would say the Anointed One, which right. would be which would be you know um, a, a a common term for referring to the Messiah. And also, um, Christ is a Greek word, and Joseph Smith himself said. There was no Greek or Latin upon the plates from which I, through the grace of the Lord, translated the Book of Mormon. Right, and that's where you get that problem with Christ and Messiah showing up both there. So in in this same topic of talking about Christ, it's it, 
there's another anachronistic portion that could, it's similar to what we talked about a minute ago around the Isaiah time, but what happens is in Ether 12, Moroni starts going down a line of, of talking about faith, and he's really tell, going through a, a strong story, and there there is a huge amount of parallels between what the story he's telling then and almost direct quotes out of the book of Hebrews, which was written by Paul, which was written about 60 years after the death of Christ. So it sure appears that when Moroni was writing his history, he had access to Paul's writings, and there's no way that could have happened either. And so that's another part of it that comes into it. And he talks a lot about Christ at that point as well. Um, A lot of the concepts, a lot of faith in Christ, belief in Christ, um, things like that 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 just get repeated over and over and over or direct quotes out of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Yeah, yeah. There's problems with the book of Mark. There's problems with the book of Matthew. Um, There's a lot of places that it parallels, you know, these writings. And, And, of course, the biblical writings didn't all emerge you know, like out of the lotus flower right after Jesus died. I mean, they appear over time, and it took a couple hundred years for the Bible to be assembled, and for the writers of the Book of Mormon to have such an intimate knowledge of the of the scrolls that eventually became the assemblage that we base the Bible on is just not probable uh, at, at all. Well, unless it's just God dictating to all these prophets the exact same terminology. So the, the the line I've heard on this is that Moroni includes a phrase somewhere in his because he was he basically acknowledges several times that he is weak of writing he wasn't as good of a of a historian of his as his father was um, and he says that Jesus helped him Jesus came to visit him and and I'm what. That, I don't yeah, that that, part. that's a stretch there. But the and the thing and it's just one or two words, right? It says Jesus he had the help of of Christ to help him do this. Well, if Christ came a second time, I I think that would be something that we would talk about. So I don't think that's a logical explanation well, for where Moroni is getting all this New Testament. Well, here's inclusion. here's my problem with that. So so you have this this narrative where Nephi makes these plates out of gold. And then they very carefully, according to the, the narrative, according to the book, they very carefully hand them down and preserve them. It's very important to them. And add to them. And add to them and write down things very carefully, and it's, it's a very important thing. And Moroni humps these around the United States for quite some time, then buries them up in Hill Camorra. And, and then Joseph Smith digs them up and goes through a lot of problems and has to carry them around and hide them in a barrel of beans and whatever else. And then... To make the book work, you start getting all these just miraculous sort of things where all that stuff, all that work that everybody did becomes less and less important. Like by the time you insert all these things, well, like they weren't really, you know, they had access to the New Testament writings, you know, hundreds of years before the New Testament was written and all these like miraculous sort of things floating around. Well, you know, and Joseph Smith was using a loose translation. It's like, why did they bother with all this effort? Because the, the plates become meaningless at this point. The more miraculous means you, you bring in to explain the origin of the book. And, and that's something I don't think has been addressed very well within the believing LDS community is, is the, the plates versus the, the breastplate and spectacles versus 
the, the whole translation method, you know, why were the plates there? Were they just there as, as physical proof? And, and it's something that proof. needs to be addressed because, uh, again, that's, that's something it, it really doesn't make sense. Why well, would he go through, the, like you said? The, the making sense part of it, it happens like this. It, if you accept that it was an inspired, in quotes, inspired translation – then you have to be able to accept the possibility of divine intervention in this thing. If you accept the, the possibility of divine intervention, then the theology can bend to do whatever you want it to do. Because if God is directing this and this and this and this, you know, you can make anything happen. But you the, can make GameCube show up in Harry Potter. It is. But that, but that makes the book all the more important. It's like, because I don't think it's necessary. Like, you can be a believing Christian and not believe in the miraculous origin of the Bible. I mean, you, you would need to believe, like, in, in the redemption of Jesus Christ and that sort of thing. But you can basically say the rest of this is just people writing stuff down to the best of their knowledge. So if we start saying that there's all these miraculous things in the book, then everything in the book gets more gravitas. Everything in the book becomes much more important. So then we start asking the question, well, why is the church constantly mixing with the text? So, so you have this scale balance. And the more weight and miraculous weight you put to the book, the more you have to take the book at face value, which means the more you have to start saying, why did they yeah, change it from the original um, great, manuscript? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. if Jesus sat with Moroni to help him write it, then why is it chock full of hundreds and hundreds of anachronistic problems? Because the, yep, the, the, the defense you'd use there is, well, they were just writing from their own knowledge or making their own mistakes. I agree. I, uh, all right. I can't argue with that at all. Well, let's go to the Brant, top three. Brant, can you argue with that? Uh, the, the, only thing of, the, the only thing that I can think of to argue is the fact that there's – and, and and I understand there there are some differences, but the similarity is 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 this: um, the Bible is, has lasted how many hundreds of uh, or not hundreds of thousands, but how many hundred years, how many thousand years? I mean, it's lasted this long, and it's not to say that there haven't been problems with the Bible. I I, I don't know who the first uh, Bible scholars that started poking holes in the Bible were, but but that's not to say that it's that 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 someone who wants to find something spiritual in the Bible can't find it, just like. My wife had a spiritual experience reading Shakespeare. So there there might be – there's anachronisms in Shakespeare. I think the problem is there is an inerrancy claim with the Book of Mormon right. that obviously needs to be addressed. There are – I think there are some good bullseyes. I think Mormon Expression did a podcast a while ago about the bullseyes. But there are some there are some anachronisms that need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed in a logical way, not parallelomania and not dissecting – Every little nuance that goes along with, but but address them logically, without using miracles as a cop out. If because that's always this, a cop out. I mean, you can always say, "Oh, well, it was." Card. Yeah, but but you know what though? To to a believer, like to someone like myself, if a church leader came out and and addressed these and and started invoking the name of of God and miracles as a believer, I'll be honest, I probably would believe. I would be very confused, but I. I would believe. So you'd like the apologists to shut up and the leaders of the church to speak up. Me too. I I I would that would be my ultimate goal. My <laughs> other goal if if we were it look, if we were referring to just the apologists, I'd I'd like some of these old school apologists that really viewed anti-moral material as a fist fight. I'd like them to go away and I'd like some of these newer apologists who take a broader worldview of things to come in and uh, 
I think Bushman is one of the greatest apologists that that we're seeing a, a modern apologist. I think Joanna Brooks is a great apologist. So that that's what I'd like to see more logical discussion. I think this is a great logical discussion that that active believing Mormons should listen to because it really should force them to think about think think about your religion, think about your book, think think about how you would address some of these things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we're I, I, I'm I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to make fun of the Book of Mormon here. I'm trying to tell you legitimate things that are that are problems with it. Um, you know, we're not just like making stuff up here. Well, maybe a little bit, but no, I I, I really I really like that. I really like that answer. All right, let's go to the top three. These are these are my three favorites, obviously. Um, number three, um, horses and chariots. Um, and other animals. No, because no. animals are... Uh, they don't even make the top ten. Oh, come on. Well, well let's talk about horses. If you're going to talk about horses, you've no, got to talk no, about okay. I'm gonna explain donkeys to you. and swine and sheep and... I'm going to explain to you why horses and chariots are number three on the list. Okay. Okay, so... And so, elephants. <laughs> and hippos. Well, we, we got to <laughs> yeah, talk about the, the hippopotamuses. The hippopotamuses don't come in the Book of Mormon, but they, they, they come into this explanation here. Uh, the apologetics. Apologists are the ones who use the hippopotamuses. All right, anyway... Everybody has walked along railroad tracks, right? So the question is, why are railroad tracks the distance from each other that they are? For the wheels. Okay. Why are the wheels that far apart? That's the original cart distance, wasn't it? Uh, exactly. So why were original carts that far, wheels that far apart? Horses? Because that's... That was, because that two horses walking next to that's each other. That's the distance of two horses walking side by side. So you go all the way back to the chariot-driven cultures, the you know, the Sumerians and the Egyptians and then the Greeks, and whenever they had a chariots being pulled by two horses, you know, so they could go fast enough in in battle, they would go over the same turf over and over again. And then other wagons and supply wagons would go over that same turf, and it didn't take too long till you had ruts. So if you had any other configuration like you tried to have four horses wide like the egyptians did that only worked on an open battle plane like where there was nothing there were no trees there was no nothing because if you were trying to get anywhere else the third horse would be over in the ditch right so so there came a point in human culture where the distance of ruts in a road became fixed there was no way to get out of that system Seems to me like it would be a one-horse chariot that would be the right size for a railroad track. No? Well, because what you have, you have wagon wheels and everything that eventually, the wheels are the same space as the horse's asses so that they fall into the ruts. Um, because the middle of the road would be, you know, it wouldn't be a flat road like we have now. Right, it'd be, a, it'd be a rut. So what I'm saying is there is these signs of of this cultural element that just propagates through everything technologically. If you have a culture that has chariots, you know all sorts of things about it. It has horses. Now, could you pull a chariot with zebras? No. It's unlikely because zebras don't have the right temperament. So horses had to have been bred for that purpose for uh, forever. And when we when we look at like knights on horses, you know, like every schoolboy does, those horses were bred special for that. That wasn't just a thoroughbred horse. 
These horses were the size of Clydesdales, and they had to have been bred and trained specially to keep moving forward in combat. Horses are just like people. When the fray starts, they want to rear up and they want to run away. So they have to specially train animals to pull chariots into combat to if, if people are riding them. So what I'm saying is where you have chariots, you have people who make chariots, you have people who make axles, you have people who make wheels, you have wheelwrights, you have people who make bridles, you have people who make whips. You have this entire cone of technology. You have all of this stuff that that has to go into it. All these people who have to study, all these people have to learn. You have to have these roads. You have to have the elements to get the chariots there. And you have to have battlefields where you can actually deploy the damn things. We took tanks, German tanks to Vietnam, and they got stuck in the mud because the tank was designed for open warfare in Europe and we were suddenly in the jungles. So that's why the Vietnamese didn't sort of develop their own tank warfare um, principle. So what I'm saying is horses and chariots are a huge anachronism because there is so much technological garbage that has to happen to get to that point and topological problems and geographical problems and problems of supply and expertise and all that stuff. We would find something somewhere. We would find a whip or a, or a um, stall or a training manual or a reference on a on a wall or something, and none of that exists anywhere in the Americas prior to Cortez. Yeah, I think that's it's prior to the Spanish coming is the big deal, and I think that it, it, the horse thing goes back even further than that. Is that they're in the in the garbage dump diggings throughout every pre um, pre Spanish um, date? There, there's just zero evidence of anything the size or shape or species of a horse uh, that they, they just didn't have them available to to do anything the transportation mode was carrying um things it was people power right um, they were so they wouldn't have been used for for transportation um they they didn't use them for food or we'd see them in their garbage dumps they just did not exist before the spanish came and that's just that's just a common like cart pulling horse and that's i'm arguing to have war horses implies this huge um horse culture and and you know and and there's the the asinine arguments of the tapir or whatever well maybe they could but did, have you seen a taper? Taper Tapier is totally different. Well, it's what I'm saying a, it's is not a something that's going to carry. Sometimes a, they uh, say it, maybe it's uh, like a, a llama. If, but even if they could, there would have to be this whole culture of training llamas or tapirs or whatever to pull chariots, and and that would leave evidence. Yeah. Well, the other the other thing, John, is that there is no um, evidence of anything to do with a wheel. Um, if you're going to have chariots for, except for those little okay, toy- l- 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 let's let's modify the statement, but and cut the apologists off. There is no evidence of an axle anywhere yeah. in the New World, and Axles that's what's and wheels key. and carts. If you're going to have a chariot, you're also going to have to support that army in carts, and they're they, they you just need axles and, and wheels and and transportation. They did not. It was a it was an on foot type of a of an envi- of a society Absolutely. because they didn't have those animals they didn't have and if they didn't have the animals and they didn't have the technology of the wheel a chariot just becomes you know you can't do it now you sort of hinted at number two are we ready to go on to number two yeah uh i guess number two 
is a huge one, but one that most uh, people gloss over, which is troop movement and um, battle size. Now, people who've... I got a bug uh, about 20 years ago. I don't know why, but I found this old like army like history book at DI, and I read it, and it was fascinating. So I read up some more on on w- the history of warfare. One of the, the 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 biggest problem in warfare is not killing the enemy; it's supplying your own troops. It always has been, and it it has. And the problem is dealing with the issues that they never talk about on the TV. Everybody's got to eat. Everybody's got to poop. Everybody's got to take Sleep. care of the. They, they got to clean themselves. The reason that um. Um, what 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 was his name? Custer. The, the when Custer came up on the Indians, they made a miscalculation on troop size because there were some assumptions the U.S. Cavalry made about how many Indians could get into a certain area. So they knew, okay, this is this this is the size of we'll never encounter more. Um, Indian braves than this because they have to take care of their horses and they have to take care of the hygiene of their own camps. It was generally a valid assumption, but the, the, the Indian generals had done some tricky stuff to get more troops there. So one of the reasons that Custer was so badly defeated is because they gravely underestimated the number of of um of enemies that would be there. And when I say gravely underestimated, I'm talking instead of 200 there were 400. Now let's talk about the Book of Mormon troop sizes. Um there's something you said Garen, basically, you know, to supply troops, you have to have ways to supply them, you know? And without carts and horses and all that kind of stuff, you simply can't get that many people on the battlefield. And before modern warfare really in the 19th century, Battles were really small because you could just you simply couldn't get ten thousand people into the same place. More than seven or eight hundred years ago, it was not possible because they all had hygiene problems. They all had to go to the bathroom somewhere, and they all had to have a, a pot of porridge. And you just simply couldn't do it. The technology wasn't there to move that sort of people around. Keep going. So it's <laughs> so the Book of Mormon has these massive numbers of of people, hundreds of thousands fighting battles, and those size battles never occurred before, like the the advent of the gas engine, so that you could move su- supplies in, and the kind of death rate that they, that they gave never happened until like a mustard gas and the machine gun, so. Just just the way that the battles are described and the troop movements, even in the battles like in Alma, where they're like jogging around hills or something, it is completely off from a basis of logistics. It can't be done. It is a pure fiction. Now, who wants to give the apologetic response? I can, if nobody else. I got nothing. The apologetic response is that, well, these are just common exaggerations. Uh, they're, well, they're, again, if it's an exaggeration, how is it the most correct book? Well, and 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 one goes to it describes and a, a huge, massive battle. The battle described in the Book of Mormon, the last stand of the Nephites um, around Hill Cumorah in upstate New York, would be the largest. I, I actually did research on this. It would it would be by a far shot the largest battle ever fought on the on the globe before the advent of like the the rifle. Um, so, so here you have this place where this largest battle, and these people were armored with swords and breastplates and shields and all this stuff. 
Nothing. Nothing. Not a single not a single rivet can we find. Nothing. Nothing's there. And this stuff doesn't just go away. Which leads us to point number one. The Let's not, hear it. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Oh, did you say sure? Oh. I'm on a roll. And he's yeah, go well, for it. Well, I, I, I mean, going. I don't know anything about battle sizes and troop movements and supply and demand. <laughs> well, which is which the, is the the only thing I would ask you about is is would you include the inability to wage war with that many people back in the Napoleon, um, you know, the, all the the battles between France and England when they were had massive movement of troops going on back and forth. They did, but they they had huge supply problems and battles themselves. You you know, like a battle like Gettysburg, you know, where there were, there were what fifty five thousand people who died in that in that battle took right. took days and days to stage. And the reason that you that many people could die is because you could sit up on a ridge with a rifle and keep packing your bullets in there and just keep shooting guys as they charged you. Before the age of the gun, if you want to kill somebody, you had to get up close to them. So only so many people could die before there were so many bodies in you the way. You couldn't get close to That you couldn't anybody. get close to them. <laughs> I, I read a while back ago that before, once again, the age of the rifle, the average battle lasted two, less than two minutes. Because there were just, people would run, it would be complete chaos, you would lose track of the flag, well, you'd lose mo- track of your... Most people would get injured and then die like a month later from sepsis or something like that, rather than, than them all dying on the battlefield too. But right. the, there would be, you know, man down, man down. Yeah, yeah. The, the, what, I can't remember what battle it was. That there was a, a battle in a swamp. Uh, this is a medieval battle, and they, they, a couple, ten, twenty years ago, they dug it up and they found the bones. So they were doing work on the bones to figure out how people got injured, and the lion's share of the injuries were to the below the knee. Oh. So apparently what they would do is they would sweep in with their sword. And it makes perfect sense Ooh, yeah. because they would knock you over. I mean, you get a sword wound to your to your calf and you're out of the battle and you're laying there rolling around on the floor and the guy from behind can't can't come up. So 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 just the massive sort of battles, 10,000 people with swords, they're just going to be in the way. Have you ever been to a football game and tried to get to your car? It's like it's like cattle. Now give all those people battle axes and tell them to run. You're not going to have any more so, action. So let me let me just challenge you a little bit because okay. I, I hadn't gone into this very far. I'm looking at um, a wiki page right now. It's the Battle of Yan Province, dated 194 to 195 CE, and it talks about here um, the rebels numbering more than three hundred thousand. Including a hundred thousand civilians surrounded to cow cow, uh-huh. um, and, and it and it appears that I was interested. I mean, we're talking about European battles and the advent of the of the gun, but I you know I'm comparing that with some of the foreign films that I've seen, and it, you have to take that with a grain of salt. But I just started looking and and seeing if I could find some old Chinese battles that involved. 100, 200, 300,000 men, and most of them appear to be in the 10 to 20,000 right. range. Now, now, I have been talking European-centric. The, 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 the Chinese, from my understanding, were more sophisticated on the battlefield. They had like better ranged archery and stuff before the Europeans did. Um, but still, you would have a problem. You know, in, in the movies, you see like this huge line of people, and then this general rides up on his horse, and he gives this invigorating speech. 
When in reality, only like six guys would have heard that. The guy, three guy down, would be like, "What? What was that guy saying?" So you know, it's it's extremely hard to get that many tr- troops to move forward, you know, simultaneously and stuff. That's why if you study something like Gettysburg, what you really have is not one battle. You have these continuous little movements here, there, and around happening all the time. So I'm not saying it's it's impossible, but when you have melee weapons. Um, just just the size of what they're saying in the Book of Mormon, just the supply problem alone really rules it out as a fiction story. Um, but other other elements like when the two kings come face to face across a river, and you know they talk about like surrounding all the enemy troops with the 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 one tr- it would take like like three hours to do that, you know, like to 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 just run the troops all the way around. And how would the hell would they even know they were all the way around? How would they communicate with each other? You know, in the in the Book of Mormon battle where they're like closing in and pushing these people into a river, it's just. Communication on the battlefield is extremely dirty. It's it's hard to know anything, and the book is just is just written like a fairy tale. Well, and and going along with with whole the, the battle tactics, I had a roommate when I was in college who was really into reenacting those medieval battles, and I remember talking to him about it. Um, and, and he said, you know, all the stuff you see in the movies is it's not the way it is. He he said what you said, John. It was basically it was a melee. You you went to to basically inflict pain wherever you could it wasn't these dramatic sword battles where you're clanging swords it was like you said you go for the knees you go for anywhere you could and and it was in your face it was front and center it was going after each other so and it's basically one-on-one when it comes right down to it yeah, uh, yeah. actually probably a more historical re- a reenactment of a battle um, happens in the first 20 minutes of the gladiator and it goes from these people lined up just sitting there waiting to you know, it goes from the start of the battle to chaos in about in about four minutes till it's over, and that's and and at the at the end of the battle, people are punching each other in the face, and that and that's that's what would have happened. Then they eventually would call it off, and the two sides would 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 run. So what what you're calling foul on John isn't battles; it's have it's the sheer number, yeah, the, have, the, and not having a modern communication system nor a modern killing mechanism. That that number, uh, you know, that the numbers couldn't be counted or it filled the the river with the dead and right. floated away for all, days. All of it, uh, That's what you're really calling absolutely on, the, is, the, is the 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 movement of the troops. Yeah, sorry, and, go ahead. No, it's just that that's what you're saying is the neachronism. Well, I mean, look is, at the Gadians. They're supposed to have the, the tens of thousands, and they're they're living in the forest. How do mm-hmm. you feed ten thousand people breakfast? Um, you, you, you know, it's it's extremely it's an extremely difficult problem, um, you know, because in the Book of Mormon it has them burning the fields like the the Nephites go on a slash and burn policy to starve them out, but it still takes years and years. You could starve them out in like three days. You, um, it's just all over and over again the the logistics, the supply trains, the movement of the troops, the the dead count. It's all off. It's all well, wrong. Didn't didn't it happen? To the Jaredites as well. I mean, it wasn't just one culture that killed every single, you know. Oh yeah, we haven't person. talked about a battle to the end, that, right? I mean, they they killed everybody except for one person, right. didn't they? Yeah, that that's another thing that never happened. I mean, that's just that that yeah, that d- does not happen in real life. When your lines break and you start getting routed, you turn around and run. I yeah. mean, that's that's what soldiers do. It's it's, it's bizarre. All right, so the number one is is related. This, so they killed all the women, children, babies, every every single person except one guy. He he was the one that killed the last baby. Or, well, or it whatever. wasn't the last two guys were battling out with their swords. Like I don't. Yeah, but what happened to all the other people? He got his people? head cut off, and he raised up, and he, he said something. Yeah, that was shiz, wasn't it? 
Yes, it was. <laughs> All right. The last one, uh, which I think is the number one anachronism, is steel. Um, first of all, the book takes place in the Bronze Age. Um, at least it starts. It starts there. There is no such thing as steel. Now let's, let's let's be clear what steel is. You take iron, and and then you coke up a furnace to where it's really super hot, and then you 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 cook it and anneal it and you pound it and 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 you you super harden um, iron. Um, and you use carbonization from the from the heat, and it makes it a very strong surface. Steel is one of the big moving. If you were to make the top ten like inventions for humankind, that's one of them. The problem is it takes extreme high heat and technological advancement. And once you got steel, you were you had such a technological edge over the other people. Um, you could just hack their little bronze weapons to pieces. Um, so, so, and it had so many applications. But, but more importantly, the process requires technology. You have to have those coke furnaces, and you're going to produce slag, which is really hard to get rid of. So, we can find steel-producing cultures because they've left behind archaeological evidence of these slag piles and these big um, furnaces where they were heating the rocks or bricks up to 3,000 degrees. And that leaves a, 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 a physical trace that just can't be erased. Let alone the weapons themselves don't just disappear. If you drop them in the ground... Um, there's still archaeologists finding things from the conquistadors in South America, little buttons and crap that they still locate today that's, that's sitting around. And here you have this claim of having steel and that – and it comes so, up over and over again in the book. And once again, it's like the horses. There's no physical sign of it, and it is completely time out of place. It is a technology that had not yet been invented. And yeah, the, I, I remember this is one of the first Cogdis things that I think probably came up on mine because I lived in, in uh, Utah Valley when I was growing up in junior high and high school and drive up the, the uh, I-15 there and you look off to the left and you see Kennecott and I'd say, you know, what's that place for? Oh, they make steel. And I go, oh, well, that's quite a blight on, you know, you can see that from everywhere. And it's like, yeah, that's that's what it. That's what it does to the earth when you do that. It it takes a lot out of the earth, and then the remainder is takes a lot. And I mean, there's just you you do not do that in a zero um, zero what don't make your mark environment and uh, um, atmosphere. I mean, you just have to. You, there's too much evidence left around. Well, and, and you know, I had an apologist. I got an argument once. He was a amateur blacksmith. And he was arguing on the finer points of if Nephi could be a um, a blacksmith and and create steel. Never mind. He was just arguing that it's technologically possible that somebody in the Bronze Age could, in fact, do it. But then the question was, okay, so he said, I've done stuff like this before. Um, now, we'll ignore the fact that he can read books and go to the library and look things up online. But Nephi would have had to create all of the other stuff. You know, he would have had to create his own furnaces and his own billows, and he would have had to get his own charcoal, and he would have had to do everything that he needed. He would have had to mine the ore and haul the ore. And even if he knew how to do all those things, like like he had perfect knowledge, it would have taken him so long just to do it. Um, but 
that aside, so so I mean that's that's where we don't even have that technology at the time. Well, and um, according to what I read, they did not in the New World use um, metal for weapons. They used Why? metal. It rusted. It rusted. <laughs> yeah. And it mentions in the Book of Mormon um, that their swords were rusted. The blades thereof were cankered with rust. Well, yeah, they says. would rust wherever you were. I mean. But they didn't use metal swords in the New World. They no. used metal for decorations and jewelry. Right. They used metal like copper, a soft metal that they could get and they could pound just, you know, they could cold hammer it. Um without having the kind of temperatures you need to get that reinforcement of steel. And and a lot of apologists argue and say, well, it's just iron. But the word iron appears separately in the Book of Mormon. It makes a clear distinction between steel and fine steel and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, you wouldn't say fine iron. No. So <laughs> so you wouldn't say steel and iron if you're talking about the same thing. So 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 there's there's... And and I'm not going to purport to be an expert on this or anything, but there's there's no way that there could be any sort of metal within the time frame of the Book of Mormon. Well, metal, you mean use steel for... had started coming in use uh, um, around the the middle period of the Book of Mormon. So so 600 BC, we're still in the Bronze Age, and meaning they're taking you know um, um, brass and they're 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 pounding it out manually and a weapon like that doesn't hold a blade very it doesn't hold an edge very long and so so you know it's something that a rich person would have and it was it wasn't very practical it didn't become more practical till you could get that um technology to turn iron into steel and that's what's important is you know you can just mine copper out of a pit and and there's all sorts of evidence all over the new world that they did this and we and they they actually made weapon edges out of it that's not but to get from iron to steel, you have to have technology. You have to have the furnaces. You have to have the blasting heat at that, you know, 3,000 degrees or whatever it is. And that's not something you can just do around the campfire with a little well oil. But, but, and, and here's the reason why I bring that up because couldn't a response be, and, and, and I understand that, that there are different types of metals that are brought up, but couldn't a response be, Joseph was just trying to use steel to describe what he was seeing with the stones or what he was seeing as as he was translating or or just in the process of translation trying to find a word that could describe best what he was what he was translating. That'd be weird because they used a lot of like wooden clubs and um what's that obsidian. That would not look like steel. No. And they were no, small blades. They didn't use like, you know, long sword like anything. They had clubs, but I don't think now, there's now ever talking, been any kind of sword found. Now now the um the the mound builders and the Iroquois, you know so Joseph Smith was up in the Great Lakes region and there were these mounds from the mound builders. And if you dug into them you would find copper um um, breastplates and shields and edged weapons that that they 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 were up there, but you you wouldn't find anything steel still, um, and, and there's nothing like that in Mesoamerica because of the climate. Well, I wonder why Joseph, or you know, it say, let's pretend Joseph wrote the Book of Mormon. Why would he include like fine steel, because or whatever? Because I mean, this ba this begs the whole anachronistic question. 
Because you don't know what you don't know. You know, if, if you're writing a story, you don't always know technologically what was there or what wasn't. He would write it from his own perspective. And that sort of stuff is talked about in the Book of Mormon. As a matter of fact, this is another little one. One of the verses in the Book of Mormon refers to steel in like Isaiah, but it's a mistranslation. And in, in, so in King James, it says steel, oh. but the actual term in the, the oh, original text is brass. Oh, so he might have thought that there were, was steel. So using then. the Book of Mormon or the Bible as a guide, he would have thought it was there, but it's an anachronism in the oh. Bible that gets propagated into the, the new world. Well, and, and then there's also the argument concerning, um, and I'm not sure if you guys have heard that, but the whole concept of the Lamanites making an oath to bury their swords and stain them no more, and how could how could this metal, whatever it is, be stained? Um, I mean, there, there's talk about the different types of weapons and everything, but but I think the metal, the, the whole question of metal does need to be, it needs to be addressed more, and I wish I could talk more on it, but I'm... I'm not a blacksmith, so I, I don't know much about the ins and outs of, of any types of metal. So, yeah. John, I have a question for you on this. Um, in in my thinking about this, this seems to be like a, a sub, sub, subplot of where the Book of Mormon um, really goes. And when you think about hearing uh, things brought up at general conference or in lesson manuals or something like that, so little time is spent to the wars and um, and then what they used in the wars. Where does this rank up there as far as, you know, I, I'm, I'm using Mike language here. I'll, I'll pretend Mike's here. Is, is this really that important to the salvation that a member would even, a good stalwart member of the church would even care I, I like that. What? I like that. I mean, that's an important issue. It's sort of like reading an old Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, Sherlock yeah. Holmes book. Yep. It's it's one little mistake that somebody makes. You know, it's and then that brings the whole story into suspect. The reason steel is number one in my eyes is there is no apologetic response. I've seen them. I've read them. They're all bullshit. There is no response to it. This is from the Bronze Age. There is no steel. So given that, given that the book is wrong, and and I would say wrong in a very serious way, this isn't something like, oh, well, I think he's wearing a green shirt, but it's actually blue. This is something that could not possibly be. That brings the entire book into suspect. Because if it if it's wrong on this point, that means it has to have been fabricated, at least in part. See, but but here's here's the problem I have with that viewpoint. And again, understand I'm coming at this from a believer's perspective. Don't apologize. Just, just <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm throwing it out there because I know what the response is going to be. But but my response is it's the same thing. There's so many anachronistic problems with even the Bible. And I understand that the claim that that the Church makes is that the Book of Mormon is um, the 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 most perfect book or most correct. Anyway, I, yeah, the most correct book. So, so I understand where where that factor comes into play. But even with all the problems that the Bible has, there are still millions of people who believe the Bible. And even with some of these problems that the Book of Mormon has, there are still millions of people who believe in the concepts that are in the Book of Mormon. Okay, I mean that's fair. But I mean, I, I would tell you in response, I have the same problem with the Bible. 
Um, well, and, and that's why I said, I mean, I, I, I kind of knew that was coming, but, <laughs> but, but to sit here and say, well, okay, there's, there's all these problems and steel is number one. And that, that means everything is impossible. And, and I know it's, 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 it's an argument that we could go round and round and round with just because we're coming at it from two different viewpoints on, on religion and on Mormonism. But I sit there and say, yes, those are problems. And, and yes, I, I wish I could answer every single one of those to, to please my mind. But at the end of the day, y- you can't tell me – well, maybe you could tell me. It's not a horrible <laughs> book. I mean it's not chocked full of errors that make it impossible to read. My my question is what does it offer that the Old slash New Testament doesn't offer? And I'm going to build on Zilpha's and say there's two questions here that, that you, you brought up. One is, is the book valuable or does it teach – valuable morals or valuable lessons that you can't get from And the second else. one is the book true. Does it is it what it purports to be or what Joseph purports it to be? I would say the second is clearly no, it's not. The book is the book is internally inconsistent in that it is not what it claims to be. So say okay, given that is the rest of the book of value and I I think that's an interesting question and outside the scope of this podcast, but it, it it's another question needs to be addressed outside of this. I agree with you, Brent. Well, and 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 permit me to get on just a, a little bit of a soapbox here. I'm, I, I understand. I, I can't answer every single question, but I, I did read something today. It was it was from Richard Bushman. He was talking about the. Um, it was at one of the. I think it was a, a fair conference, and one of the things that he explicitly said was the fact that that Mormons need to address these these concepts we we need to address them head on we we can't skirt around the issue anymore and and i think this was just from 2006 so it's pretty recent but still it's it's the whole concept you know you you guys have brought up really legitimate points that have been researched that if anyone asked in the comments what's what's your proof for this you could bring it up as as mormons as believing mormons there needs to be more addressing of the issue and and really putting it out there and I think that that's going to be one of the biggest things going forward for the church is being able to recognize some of these things are out there and maybe not providing a, an explanation that 100% gets it correct, but at least providing something. Mm-hmm. I agree. Instead of ignoring them? No, the, I, I think there's probably, there always is a middle way. There's a way to like salvage Mormonism outside of the fact that this this book is clearly not a ancient record. I mean, the w- 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 this is the top ten anachronism. I mean, when we're talking about top ten of five hundred, and the the book is absolutely, in my opinion, no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, um, a nineteenth century work. Um, now, I don't know exactly. I'm not here to say who wrote it or or all that sort of stuff, but I I, I think the the anachronisms themselves, in my opinion, give weight to that. Now, whether or not it's um, inspired or divine or has a message for our people today is is completely outside the question of troop movement and and whether or not the sort of laban was made of fine steel all right well we're coming up on two hours brent you're the you're the sort of believer i'm going to give you the last word uh i i think that from from my own believing perspective Honestly, it, w- it was hard to research all the apologetic responses and sift through a lot of what they said. So it's it's difficult to sit here and say the things that, that you guys have all said, all these anachronisms. It's difficult to refute them all. But for me, at the end of the day, like like I just 
ranted on my soapbox before, I, I really think there needs to be some discussion, some more open discussion within the church of at least, again, from a believing perspective, at least giving the members the opportunity to know, look, these these issues are out there. And if someone challenges you, what are you going to say? Because again, it's the same situation for me. There's not much I can say. And so I just wish that there'd be a little more open discussion about some of these legitimate issues that are out there. Yeah. You, you think with the brain power of the church and the apologists and the the academia that that there could be more uh there is the book of mormon 101 for college there should be the book of mormon 301 you know where people who are more advanced know what the what at least the response is because there there are responses don't don't get me wrong well at least what the issues are at least what the issues are yeah most mormons would be completely blindsided by this um you know that they, they would have no idea when you talk about the sort of laban that you're talking about something that couldn't have existed in time Anywhere on the globe. <laughs> all right. Um, some last word. I just stomped all over your life. <laughs> That's all right. I gave you permission, so we're okay. <laughs> all right. Well, Garen. Hey, this has been a great one. It's been fun. Brant, Silfa. Until next Good time. Good night, everybody. Good night. As always, the Good discussion night. out there on the board. See you there. <laughs>